0: Greetings everybody, this is David Avocado Wolf here and we are gearing up for our fourth annual Women's Wellness Conference, www.womenswellnessconference.com. That's going to be at the Orange County Hilton right next to John Wayne Airport in Southern California and literally less than an hour from LAX. We're going to be joined by Carolyn Mace, the food babe Vanihari, Dr. Sarah Godfrey, Dr. Alan Christensen, Robin O'Brien and... Our special guest today is Marianne Williamson. You may know her from her incredible run of six New York Times best-selling books. She's an incredible lecturer. She's been on television for years. Oprah, Larry King Live, Good Morning America, Charlie Rose. With no further ado, I want to introduce really an incredible philanthropist, an incredible voice in our world today, Marianne Williamson. How are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm fine. Thank you, David. How are you?
0: I'm actually having the best day ever today. Great. <laughs> so, so it's going good. I wanted to ask you, we're going to get caught up on, you know, your latest work, but I want to talk about what's going on with with the Internet, social media. It, seemingly, it seems like we're getting more connected, but in other ways we're getting more disconnected, right? We're connected, way more connected with people living 5,000 miles away from us than we are with our neighbor. I want to talk about connection a little bit and your thoughts on, where we stand in the midst of all our technology.
1: Well, you're right. I mean, there are many ways that the Internet does connect us with others and give us a greater capacity to do so. The Internet is like any other material phenomenon. Its use is dictated by the purpose we ascribe to it in our own minds. So when our intention is to connect And our goal is deeper connection, then the internet is an extraordinary tool in doing that. But when we do not have a conscious intent to connect, or even when we have a, as some people do, a conscious intention to be destructive or to disconnect, then the internet is also a powerful tool for that. So it's really not about the internet. It's about human consciousness and what we, how we seek to use it, either to create or to destroy.
0: It's like the technology seems to amplify. Exactly.
1: yeah, it's a magnifier. That's exactly right. And that's why it's taking us more quickly in more, to, in one direction or the other. The human race is either rushing towards destruction, self-destruction, or the human race is rushing towards enlightenment. That's the crossroads we're at. And I think that part of the, the collective realization that's occurring now, and certainly that needs to occur, is that there's really no such thing as a neutral thought. You can't just hang out in the universe anymore. You know, they used to say in the 60s, if you're not a part of the solution, you are part of the problem. And with the way the world is going today, any day of our lives that is not spent in a conscious and proactive effort to be in love service, in the service of a more righteous life, a more responsible life, a more loving life, a more compassionate life, then in some way we will be used uh, by the forces of the status quo and the status quo is one in which fear dominates our civilization. It dominates the consciousness of the planet. And if we allow ourselves to simply go along with the prevailing thought forms and the prevailing habit patterns of the species at this time, then we, whether we want to or not, are at least inadvertently used by the forces of fear for fear's purposes.
0: I remember in Return to Love, you talked about fear is really the root of all evil. I, I just had a friend in town here, Um, Who came up with her family, and they run a a small cafe in Texas, and it's it's kind of an avant-garde cafe. It's not the normal um, coffee house, and they've got a lot of different things on the menu. And she was just remarking to me how everybody in the local community there, who doesn't, who's not familiar with what they're doing, and kind of wanders in for the first time, is just they're just in fear about everything. Oh no, I can't have that. No, I can't have that. No, no, what's this? Oh, I don't think I can do that. What is the deal with fear? So rampant
1: love what darkness is to light. It's not actually a thing. It's the absence of a thing. So you can't hit the darkness with a baseball bat uh, in order to get rid of it. You have to turn on the light. And similarly, you can't hit fear with a baseball bat in order to get rid of it. You have to turn on the love. So somewhere along the line, love stopped being the bottom line. The cultivation of community stopped being the bottom line. Taking care of our family stopped being the bottom line putting primacy on how we relate to other human beings and show up in our communities and show up for our children, stop being the bottom line. Now, I'm not saying we were ever perfect at this, but over the last few decades, the race to accumulate, the ways that we have allowed money to become our false god, the ways in which the short-term economic gain of certain segments of our society, who represent, by the way, this a small section of our society, segment population-wise, has become the bottom line by which our entire society now functions. And it is at the expense of all things good, true, holy, and beautiful, more oftentimes than not. Now, starting with the Industrial Revolution over 100 years ago, back at the end of the 1800s in Britain and then in the United States, the Scientific Revolution started all this. Now, obviously, the Scientific Revolution has had many good consequences that, has been, that have been a blessing on many people's lives, medical progress, and so forth. There's, there's no doubting that. But it also has taken the consciousness, particularly of the Western mind, and so externalized it. We have become so concentrated as a, as a human race, certainly in the West, on things outside ourselves, too often at the expense of things inside ourselves. Inside is where love is, tenderness, genuine relationship, authenticity, connectedness, principle, ethics, integrity. And I think that the good news is how many people... Are recognizing this. You know, that that's why I feel, David, there is hope. You don't have to have a majority to change uh, a, a, a civilization. You know, the majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's free the slaves. The majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's give women the right to vote. The issue is the tipping point. The issue is Enough, you know, whatever that hundredth monkey is. Now, most social scientists today speak in terms of something I like the, the thought is somewhere along the line of eleven percent that when eleven percent of a population within any system takes a fundamental shift, makes a fundamental shift in worldview, then the entire system shifts. That's why conferences like what you're putting on are important. That's why all these conferences, all these processes, all these books being written, all these these the way consciousness is going mainstream, This is very, very good because what it's doing is contributing to this resonant field by which enough of us are saying, first of all, that what is, is intolerable and is unsustainable. And number two, in whatever ways that people are doing, genuinely embracing a different kind of life, coming to the point of realizing there might be another way. And once you open your mind to the idea there might be another way, then the ways start to present themselves conferences to go to, books to read, spiritual practices and so forth. So I think hope is a moral imperative. I think everything we need to have happen is actually happening. It's just not happening fast enough. Most of us, certainly the kind of people who are listening to to your work and participating with you are already at a point of some realization of all this or they wouldn't be. And now I think what we need to all be really saying to one another is you're probably doing the right thing. Step it up. I think that's really the message for our generation at this point.
0: Right. Just pour it on. You probably, you might have a a couple of years on me. I, I grew up in the 70s and just the roles of men and women were totally different back then than they are today. Let's get into that a little bit. Like, for example, the women I know in my life work harder than the women I, I knew back when I was a kid. It just feels that way. They work harder. They do more. They're, they're actually more capable in a lot of different ways because they have more skills. It, that's just what I've seen in my life. How is the change in women's roles in the world, and men's too, where are we headed with that, especially its impact on intimate relationships between men and women?
1: Well, first of all, when you talk about the world, I think we need to realize we're talking about the Western world because you can't Mm -hmm. even compare the role of women in a modern democratic society with the role of women, for instance, in places under Sharia law or something like that, where Mm -hmm. women are not even allowed out of the house without a male relative or whatever. But if you're talking about our civilization and the role of women, I wrote a blog that people can find um, on Marianne.com, and it's it's called Honoring Athena embracing Aphrodite. Athena is the Greek goddess of achievement. Uh, she's about achievement. She's about getting things done. Many wonderful things that women certainly uh, embrace in a modern society that so many uh, glass ceilings have been broken through. So many barriers have come down. Obviously, we still have some work to do, but you can't even compare what used to be possible. All that's great. However, I think women are also coming to realize Athena is a virgin goddess. So There is another goddess named Aphrodite, and Aphrodite is the goddess of love and pleasure and romance. Now, the thing with goddesses and gods is that they're psychic vortexes. You can hold as many within yourself as you wish, and we are willing to have in life whatever we are willing to be. The problem is that we have allowed Athena in too many cases to take over our lives, and we hunger. Women hunger for Aphrodite, but too many women feel now that we are achieving or having success at work or trying to have success at work, in too many cases, at the expense of Aphrodite. Now, there are external reasons for this, social, economic, political, absolutely. For instance, how many hours you have to work today in too many situations to be a success or to be considered a success. We 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 look at people who work, you know, 80 hours a week and we call them, you know, in too many cases, we we call them really you know success oriented when we should recognize collectively that this is sick. You know you can't you can't foster healthy family relationships and intimacy and so forth when all your life is spent working. So some of the things economically, some people though would say they have to work that much. So that has to do with you know so much of the income inequality issues, uh, social policies, economic policies, etc. For the majority of us, however, it is not external forms of obstruction. It is internal forms of obstruction that are keeping Aphrodite at bay, our own thought forms. And that's why I'm doing this Aphrodite work. I'm doing something called the Aphrodite training, because there are lifestyle decisions that have to be made, everything that have to do with even the fact that when a woman is at work, your our consciousness is, for the most part, in a masculine-oriented way. And that's because when you're at work, you're in the sort of masculine self. But many of the psychological and emotional orientation that makes a woman successful at work then would actually make her unsuccessful in a romantic relationship. So there is a lot for us to discuss there, a lot for us to analyze there, including the fact that it actually takes the brain. This program was brought to you by TheBestDayEver.com. Thanks for listening.